And so it's a great joy. I'm looking forward to preach this morning. And I want to look at you, look uh, this morning at something that I've been looking, thinking about for a while. We're going to talk about the kingdom and the church and how they work together. As I said to you last week, I had the privilege of uh, going at the end of last year in November to Chicago to Willow Creek Church, which um, I attended like a, a week of mentoring with Bill Hubbles, which was a great privilege. And um, I've been feeling some things for a while that I, I've wanted to preach for a while. And one of the things I've wanted to preach for a while is just uh, to speak a little bit around the kingdom and the church and how the two interlock with each other and work together. And uh, I trust that you've enjoyed a great start to 2016. I certainly enjoyed Christmas and New Year. And it was a great time with our friends and fa- family. But I, I started the first Sunday after Christmas with the New Year just talking about as a basis for for the year, to be God-filled people, to trust God, to uh, that we would get to know Him a little bit more deeply this year in whatever way we can. And I try to encourage you uh, with that in that regard, that we would make that a priority for our lives in 2016. And then following on from that last week, I, uh, I, I preached a message called Living an Invitational Life, where I looked at the miracle of Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, where the small community of believers in the synagogue, about 200 people, hear Paul, who is visiting with Barnabas, and they are so amazed with the message of grace that he brings to them that they say, uh, will you come and speak again next week? And so he does that, and 50,000 people, which they said, the archaeologists say, pretty much the whole town of Pisidian Antioch, almost the whole town, comes back to hear Paul a second time, what he has to say about um, the grace of God. And I said to you that it was a miracle. It is a miracle. That, you know, we can, we, we, we can um, do all we can to invite people to hear the message of grace, but that is a miracle that 50,000 turn out the next week. It really is. But what I try to encourage you with is that all of us can learn to be compelled with great joy from the inside that we want to share the message of God's goodness with other people. And that was my encouragement to you, that we would take every opportunity that we have to share this wonderful message of grace that God has changed our lives with, that we might see many, many people come to Christ. And I want to encourage you with that. God can do anything He wants to. God could transform St. Albans, St. Albans, St. Albans in the most amazing way just by using us as a church community and using every other church that uh, is in this area that preaches the gospel. And so I encourage you out of that to try and ask God to help us this year to help that not just be a good idea, but that we would own that idea. And remember, we look at those those five little steps that we can take to move from something just being a good idea. Oh, that's a good idea that we invite people to Jesus, that we actually own that idea and we live in that idea and that our lives are invitational, that we are, by our very nature, inviting people to Christ. And so um, I looked at that last week. And a friend of mine this week gave me these cards, which I thought quite helpful. It's called Moments in Life. And these are... These are just cards that are designed around different um, periods in your life, different things that happen. Someone gets married, someone loses a loved one, your kids leave home, something like that. And you want to send a card to someone just to encourage them and start a conversation with them. And so they've designed this little pack and uh, they cover those things that I've said. And the, the idea is that you would just send your mate a card in the hope that they would read what is inside and start a conversation with you, a spiritual conversation. 
And so I want to encourage you, if you, if you want to buy these, um, they, and they're not, I'm not making any money out of this. This is put together by some guys in Harpenden, and they're selling them for 20 bucks, including the tin, and then apparently you can get a refill and you don't have to buy the tin again once you've used the cards. <laughs> All right? But if you are interested, uh, there's some at the back there, and they are 20 pounds. You can also go online and order them online. The details are there. And I just think it's a great idea to try and engage with people. And everyone knows someone who's lost a loved one, whose uh, kids have gone to university. Let's take opportunities to start some conversations with people that we can encourage them to find Christ. All right? So today I want to look at this thing of an invitational life from a slightly different angle. But it really is essentially the same thing when I'm talking about the kingdom and the church. Because to live a life that invites people to Christ, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. Um, and Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples to pray, one of the things that he said we should pray for is for the kingdom to come. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to start by asking, what did, what did Jesus understand by the word kingdom? Why did he use that word? And I think it's vital to understand what the word means because how we understand the word kingdom will determine what we focus on. All right? And I, w- I can put it another way. Our kingdom mission, the, uh, the mission that we have for the kingdom, is determined by our kingdom definition. How we understand the kingdom will determine the mission of our lives and how we live. So how do we understand it biblically? And um, let me start by saying this, and it, like I said, this subject has concerned me for a long time. And you might not agree with everything that I'm about to say to you this morning, but I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to honestly seek God and seek the Scripture, and I'm going to point some things out this morning, but I'm convinced of what I'm saying to you this morning, all right? I'm absolutely convinced of it. And I I hope that you'll become convinced too. This is my my basic um, premise this morning. There are those in the church that talk about the kingdom in a way that diminishes the importance of the local church. This is what I mean. And you see, for me, Jesus never did that. (laughs) Jesus said we should pray for the kingdom to come, and he also said he was building his church. Yeah, And he said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. So Jesus loved both. He loved the kingdom, and he loved the church, and that's how he lived. So the question is, how do people understand the word kingdom? And I think that the way we understand the word kingdom results in a kind of thought process in some people's language and thinking that diminishes the importance of the local church. And it seems to me that as I've thought about it, the word kingdom is used in a flabby way. It's used in an undefined way. And what happens is that when people use the word kingdom, people mean different things when they, when, when they, they use the word kingdom. Not everyone means the same thing when they use the word kingdom. This is what I mean. Uh, I want to quote Byron. Byron said words are very important. He said this, Words are things, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, think. Brilliant, eh? Byron was a sharp guy. (laughs) Okay? Words are things, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps Millions think. So if, we, if we're going to think well about this word kingdom, we need to define it carefully. And here are some common ways that I've found the word kingdom is used by people in the church. And I am using church in a generic sense, 
the whole church. Okay? First, some people use the word kingdom as an ethical word. This is what I mean. When we are taking care of creation, when we are talking about green issues, issues of justice, issues of mercy, then we are doing kingdom work. Then the kingdom is coming. When we see social justice come, when we see people set free from uh, trafficking, uh, taking care of refugees, we see the kingdom come when we are engaged in those kind of things. It's seen as an ethical word, kingdom. So I have a question. If the kingdom is just about ethical things, did someone like Gandhi, did he do kingdom work? Now, Gandhi was a great man. He was a good man. He did some amazing things. But my point is, did he do kingdom work? You see, I've had a conversation, and I've heard some people say, yes, Gandhi did have king, do kingdom work. This is my problem. If you say that, if you say that he did do kingdom work, it, it raises another issue for me. Do you have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to do kingdom work? If you say not, what about the message of the gospel? Why do we need the gospel then? <laughs> Why do we need the church? If all that's necessary to do kingdom work is to be a good person doing good things, why need the church? Why need the gospel? So that's the first way that people use the word kingdom, in this kind of ethical way of we do good things and that's when the kingdom comes. Second way, some people define the kingdom as to do with gifts of power. This is what, the charismatic, what charismatics like. When there's evidence of the presence of God, when there are signs and wonders, when there's healing, when there's all that stuff, that is evidence of the kingdom. Jesus went around preaching and setting people free from demons and healing the sick. So when we see those things, the kingdom is coming. So they see the kingdom in terms of gifts of power. Now, gifts of power are absolutely vital and absolutely part of the kingdom, but we can't reduce the whole of the kingdom to gifts of power and healing. So it seems to me our definition of kingdom needs to be a little bit bigger than that, and I'm going to point you to some scripture that I hope will help you to see that. Thirdly, some say the kingdom is the church. Where do I get that from? Well, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox churches, that's what they believe. The kingdom is the church. They're not separate. The kingdom is the church. So you belong to the kingdom when you join the, the Catholic church. That's how, that's how uh, they understand it. And they can't separate these two things out. Now, for me, the Reformation... One of the great things that the Reformation did was that it separated the church and the state. Now, I think we need to be very careful. I, personally, I don't think we should have bishops in the House of Lords. My conviction. I don't think we should. Why? Because it gets messy when politics gets involved in, the, in issues of the gospel. And then you're not free to speak in to some things because it's political. You don't want to offend people politically. No, I think the church and state should be completely separate. Completely. That the church can speak into issues of state without any sense of being tarnished by anything that is political. Are you with me? That's my conviction. Might not be yours, that's my conviction. Thirdly, um, fourthly rather, some say that the kingdom is connected to a future utopia. This is what I mean. Things are not good here on the earth. But when the kingdom comes, there will be perfection. When the kingdom comes, there's this, this future utopia. When we see that, all this bad stuff will stop happening here 
Alright? And if you read the Gospel of John, if you read the book of Re- Revelation, that is really what John and Revelation, the point of view that they're coming from, that there's a perfect future coming for us that is the fullness of the kingdom. So that is also true. <laughs> All these things are true in part. They are true. But how do we come to a biblical understanding of what the kingdom of God is? And I want to come back to my starting point just to remind you, this is my problem. This is my problem. For many, the kingdom has become good and the church has become bad. (laughs) And they are compared to each other in a way that the church always loses out to the kingdom. This is is what I mean. The language is, is like this. Kingdom people cannot be put into a church box. Have you heard that kind of language? We are kingdom people, and we do not want to be forced into the church box. The church must get out of its box and do the work of the kingdom. Have you heard this kind of language? We want to be big-hearted kingdom people. We don't want to be small-hearted church people. And so this language, this thinking, it pits the kingdom against the church. And in my mind, in the last five years, I've always seen what loses out is the local church. Every single time. And Jesus said, he prayed, he taught us to pray, and said, I want you to pray that the kingdom would come. And he also said, I am building my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And Jesus never pitted the church against the kingdom. Never. Nor did Paul. And next week, I'd like to look in a very practical way how Jesus and Paul lived out the gospel life in community. But that's that's a subject for another day. But let's just say, suffice for today, Jesus never pitted the kingdom against the church. He loved both. And so, I would put it to you that all of us need to be encouraging each other. I would put it to you that the church faces some rather insidious enemies that, are, are, that all of us need to face. Recreation and leisure is the biggest enemy of the church right now. I want to just be quite upfront with you. So let's not, let not Christians be fighting about the kingdom and the church and, and Christians leaving churches because they want to be about the kingdom and they don't want to be about the local church. Surely, come on guys, we, we, there's a common enemy out there and it's certainly not the church and it's certainly not the kingdom. So I want to say it's vital, vital, vital. If we're going to fully live invitational lives that we start to understand the fullness of what the kingdom means and that we... The church takes its right, rightful place in all of that. Uh, you might say, oh, and come on now. The church is so imperfect. It's full of messy people. They're all messed up. The issues seem so small and insignificant. I don't want to just be dealing with people's problems. Uh, give me the big issues of the world. I want to save the world. I want to save the world. Come on, that's what I want to give myself to. The big noble issues of saving the world. Don't, don't get me all into the local church to help people with their problems. Well, I'll put it to you this morning. That's precisely the point. (laughs) That's what church is. Church is about a messy community of imperfect people that have been saved by the grace of God, that are learning about the grace of God, that are encouraging each other in their journey. That's exactly what God has. That is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. Who else is going to help people sort out their problems if it's not God's people? (laughs) Uh, well, I tell you, the, the culture will. Can I just say this to the parents right now? You guys who've got small kids are facing something incredibly difficult. 
Helen was listening to a program on Radio 4, a woman's program. She said to me this week, and these ladies were talking about their lives, and um, they said this. They said, oh, the one said, oh, I've been married for, for, um, for many years, but you know, I'm really feeling to move to, to sexual experimentation, and so I've started getting involved with other women, and it's really cool. It's kind of like I've got this kind of sense of experimentation, and I don't have to be, I don't have to be uh, locked down to one form of sexuality anymore. I can explore everything. Well, what's my point? The point is, there's no moral compass in our community anymore, and people are being told, that is okay. Your kids at school are now being told this, and you need to face this head on. It's okay to choose whether you want to be a man or a woman. You now have the choice to choose whether you want to be. So if you feel like you're a man, and you feel like perhaps you should have been a woman, you have the choice now to go through a process and change your sexuality. We are living in a complex world where we can't just have simple answers for everyone. My point is, the church needs to take its rightful place in our hearts. The kingdom needs to take its rightful place in our heart because we are facing some big things that need to be torn down. Let me ask you again, what did Jesus mean in Matthew 4 where he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? And remember, we're trying to find a biblical definition for kingdom. Well, I want to say this. To really understand what Jesus was saying, we have to become as much as possible, you can't do this fully, but as much as possible, become a first century Jew. Because Jesus, he grew up in a, in a Jewish culture, and when Jesus quoted the scripture, what did he quote? <laughs> he quoted the Pentateuch. He quoted the prophets. He quoted the Psalms. He quoted the Old Testament. When Jesus, Jesus used the word kingdom, he had an understanding of what kingdom meant in his Old Testament, in, in that context. And he was bringing something new, and we'll look at that, but he understood the word, and he thought with the word in the context of the Old Testament. Now, I've done a little study. In the Old Testament, there are 200 verses that speak about the kingdom in some way. 199 verses of the 200 have five things in common, which I'm going to give to you this morning. There's one exception, and I just want to deal with the exception straight away, all right? There's one exception. The one verse that doesn't speak about the kingdom in the five ways that I'm going to give you is Psalm 103, verse 17, which says this, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to their children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commands. The Lord has established His throne in the heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Yeah? His kingdom rules over all. And that is true. There's a sovereign work of God uh, where His kingdom is reigning in the world. Okay? That's the only scripture that says it. The other 199, and if you would like to go and check them, you can. They all speak about the kingdom in a very simple way that I'm going to give to you this morning. The most basic way for us to understand the kingdom is simply this. A kingdom is a people governed by a king. That is it. The kingdom of God is a people governed by a king. And I'll put it to you, if you in, your, in your using of the word kingdom, if you, put, if you understand it like that and you use it like that, you will not go wrong. Right? Here are the five constants in those 199 scriptures. Number one, the kingdom has God as its king. All right? Very simple. The kingdom has God 
as his king. Can I point you to the story of Samuel? Remember the story of Samuel? When the people say they want a king like all of the other nations, what, is, uh, what does God say to Samuel? He says, it's not you they've rejected, it's me they've rejected. And so we see from that point on, there was a theocracy. God was reigning over his people and now becomes a monarchy. And unfortunately, the story of the Old Testament is, as you read about the kings through the book of Kings and, and further, that the kings get progressively worse from David onwards. And that's the struggle of God's people in the Old Testament. They wanted a king. They wanted a monarch. They didn't want a king in heaven. They wanted an earthly monarch. They wanted a kingdom on being governed by a, a, a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you that. And what happens? It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, what happens in the New Testament? Well, in, New, in the New Testament, we have that quite clearly, where God is king. <laughs> we have a new king. We have a Christocracy. We have Jesus is king. So that's what the New Testament equivalent is. When Jesus rules and reigns, we have his kingdom. We have a king, and we have God as its king. And you see, when Jesus said the, that, the, that the kingdom of God had come, the people rejoiced, because what did they think? He was going to throw off the Roman uh, emperor and the, the Roman system of government, and there was going to be a new system for them. There was going to be a new king. That's why they rejoiced. Second, first, first constant, the, king, the kingdom has God as its king. Second, the kingdom has a king who rules? Another obvious thing to say. How does the king rule? He rules by saving us. He ru rules by redeeming us. In the Old Testament, he rules by ransoming us. And the Old Testament picture of that is one of being released from slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. They were enslaved. And what did God do? He took them out. Moses took them out of slavery into the promised land. That's the Old Testament picture of how they were ransomed and re redeemed and restored by God so that he could reign over them. Yes, that's the Old Testament picture. What is the New Testament picture? In the New Testament, what does the, 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 the Bible speak of? Jesus has ransomed us out of our sin. We were slaves to sin. We were in, in the bondage of, of, of slavery, and God has ransomed out of, He's rescued us out of that by the power of the blood of Jesus, and we are no longer slaves to sin. We are set free by the blood of Jesus, the grace of God, and we are living a, a free and liberated life because of what Jesus has done. That's the New Testament picture. We are under a king who rules us by grace. Thirdly, a kingdom has a people and is a people. That's, this is very important. The kingdom has a people and the kingdom is a people. I just spoke to you um, about skinny jeans theology, which I call skinny jeans theology, and I'm wearing skinny jeans today. We talk about um, the kingdom as an ethic. Uh, it's all about saving the planet. I've spoken that uh, this morning. But I want to say to you, it can't just be that. It can't be reduced to that because the kingdom is a people who are under a king. And in the Old Testament picture of that, we have the people of Israel. People could be added to the people of Israel as proselytes. They could get, they could co get converted to Judaism. But mainly in the Old Testament, the people of God are an ethnic group. It's a Jewish group. Yes? That's why we're talking about the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, what does Paul say? He says, we as God's people, the church, 
It's still a people. The people are now the church. Those who accept the reign of Jesus, the church, are God's people, and we are grafted in. Notice Paul does not say God started a new tree. He says we are grafted into the old. The old is the trunk of Israel. The church is grafted into the old, and that's how we become part of God's people. We are grafted in as the church. And so there's a sense that it's expanded. And now, the people that are governed by King Jesus is the church. That's why I say it's impossible to do kingdom work outside of a community of believers that are under the reign of King Jesus. Impossible. Not possible. There was a Dutch theologian called Adrian Kaper. Have you ever heard this teaching called the Seven Mountains of Influence? Have you ever heard this teaching? This is Kaperism. What it says, it says that God's kingdom reigns over all. So it starts with that one exception. God's kingdom reigns over all, and so His kingdom is coming everywhere, and so we must, we must uh, there are different areas that His kingdom has influence. So, for example, in the arts, or in politics. And the church is just one part of the big kingdom. You understand what, what the difference is? No, I'm, I'm saying that we certainly influence all those areas, but God's kingdom, it's not just one little part. The church is not one little part of God's kingdom. The, the whole of the kingdom comes through the church, which is God's people who are under His reign and rule, and His people, not everyone else, His people influence the arts and politics and culture, and they do kingdom work when they do that. Are there other people doing good things? Absolutely. And we rejoice. Wherever light pushes back darkness, we rejoice. But the work of the kingdom is done by believers who are under the rule of Jesus, who've said, I want your rule in my life and I'm living for you. That's when kingdom work is done. Fourth, a kingdom, fourth constant, a kingdom is, is a people governed by law. Would you agree? In the Old Testament, we see this. What was the Old Testament? The law of Moses. And I've spent many, many months trying to tell you that we are no longer under the law of Moses. We are free. We're under the grace of God. Do you notice when, the, when, when Moses goes up the mountain and the people, he comes down with his tablets, do you notice the people don't get to vote? Did you notice that? We would want to vote, wouldn't we? We would say, ah, Moses... No, no, no. We need to discuss this in Parliament, and we need to debate, and actually see if we agree that this is a good thing that you are telling us. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? So, there's a sense in the Bible that God knows what is best for His people, and He doesn't really debate. He says, no, this is good for you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You know all those things that Moses comes down with. What do we have in the New Testament? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, there is what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. You know that sermon? And this is where Jesus, it says he goes up onto a mountainside. You know there are no mountains in, in Galilee? Do you think it's a mistake that they, the gospel writers said he goes up onto a mountain? No. 
I think the gospel writers did it on purpose. Why? Because they are painting a picture for us, and this is what they want to understand. In the Old Testament, Moses went up a mountain, and he heard from God, and he gave you the law. In the New Testament, Jesus, figuratively, he goes up on a mountain, and he hears from God, and he says, this is the new law for my people. And he says things like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus gives the new law to his people. He's saying, this is how I want you to live. And he goes on and he says, what does he say? He said, you have heard, you have seen it written, you have heard it written, do not commit adultery. He he quotes Moses. And he says, no, you've heard that Moses said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. Jesus is saying, the old is gone. I'm giving you new way to live. It's the way of grace. It's much higher than the law. I want you to understand that. And he unpacks it for them. Go and read Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. That's how God wants us to live. By the power of the Spirit. By grace. And so that's why the Bible uses this picture. Moses going up the mountain, Jesus going up on a mountainside, whether it was a literal mountain or not, doesn't matter. The language is there to say Jesus was giving a new, a new law of grace, of love to his people, his new people, the church. Are you with me? And again, do you notice that he didn't say to his disciples, and I want you to vote about this. I want you to vote on forgiveness. Do you think it's a good thing? Uh, I want you to vote on what I have to say about thinking lustfully about another woman. I want you to vote and think about it and see if it's a good... No, no. Jesus, in the same way, he says, I give you this, it's good for you. This is my way, the way of grace, the way of the gospel. And fifthly, the kingdom in the Old Testament has a land. So what do we do with that in the New Testament? Um, the promise of the land doesn't go away. It expands in the New Testament to a new reality, a political and, I'd say, a geography, which is a a new reality. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then into the whole Roman world and the Gentile land. And the land, really, is where Christians take any space in influence in, 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 in society, in a political sense, and we embody the life of Jesus. That's how we take the land. Jesus was like a mobile temple. <laughs> Remember he said the old temple is gone? I am the temple. That's what he's saying. Jesus is like a mobile temple. Wherever he went, he took the presence of God. Wherever the presence of God went, the kingdom of God came. Same for you and I. We are God's temple by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where we go through our lives, we influence every area of society. 
We influence teaching if we're a teacher. We influence art if we're an artist. We influence business if we're a business person. And through us, something of the kingdom comes because our lives are submitted to the rulership of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus, and his kingdom comes through our lives wherever we go. And we push back the darkness a little bit. Are you with me? This is how the kingdom works. This is the kingdom. And so, what about comparing... I'll finish with this. Half an hour, roughly. I'll finish with this. So, what about comparing the kingdom and the church? Well, I think it is very, very unhelpful. I think it is not something we should be doing. I think that, it, as I've tried to unpack for you this morning, I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's helpful in the least. Well, what about the present kingdom and the future kingdom, Ant? Isn't it true that the perfect fullness of the kingdom is still to come? Yes, it is true. But this is the problem. People compare the present imperfection of the church to the future perfection of the kingdom. That is incredibly unhelpful. Incredibly. No, what must we do? We must compare the present understanding that we have of the kingdom with the present church. How it is now. What happens in Ephesians? The church is inaugurated. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, Paul says the church has been birthed and this is what the church is. But the fullness, the perfection is still to come. But we compare the present reality with the present church. Not the future reality with the present church. That's just unhelpful. Are you with me? And that's when things... If we do that, the church always comes second. I've said this to you over and over again. Let me say it one more time. The church is not a country club for saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. The church is a hospital for people who are sick, who know they need a doctor, and they need to get better. That's what the church is for. I welcome everyone who is broken and bruised and needing a savior, because that's my life. That's what I need. Every moment of every day, I need Jesus. And so anyone who's broken and needs Jesus is welcome. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. If you are full of pride and say you don't need Jesus, can I just respectfully say you won't find him? Because what he wants is humble people who say, Jesus, I need you. And so, I want to look a little bit more in detail next week at the kingdom and the church, and how we work it out as a community, because that's how Jesus lived, and that's how Paul lived. They framed the Christian life in a community, and that's what our, that's what our generation doesn't like. Our generation that was born in the 80s and the 90s, and perhaps the older guys a little bit less, but the newer guys, why? Because what is most valuable to young people right now is independence! I can do it myself. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I can even choose my own sexuality. If I want to choose to be a man, I'll be a man. If I want to choose to be a woman, I'll be a woman. Don't anyone tell me what to do. At least of all, God. You see, that's the real challenge for our generation. For this generation, that's that's the big, big thing we are going to have to help people to see. We cannot do it by ourselves. We need each other. We need Jesus' church. We need each other. That's how we stand side by side. That's how we fight the good fight. You want to be a soldier on your own? You're going to be a dead soldier. 
birds just agreeing with me. It's hard enough as it is. We need each other. We need, and this is how the New Testament frames the Christian life. We're going to look at that next week. Okay. God bless you. I, I want us to break bread. Um, for those that are visiting, we, we are quite casual in the way that we break bread. I hope we are not irre- irre- irreverent in the way that we break bread. But we break bread quite regularly. Uh, and when we do that, we're reminding ourselves that we need Jesus. We need His body. We need His blood. We need His forgiveness. We need His gospel every single day of our lives. And it's a reminder to us that we need Him. And so, you're welcome to join us if you love Jesus. And if you know Him, you're welcome to, to join us. And we, we serve ourselves. And we pray with each other. And we pray as families, as friends. And so, I trust that uh, we won't leave anyone out this morning, all right? And that if the other visitors will include them as we break bread together. So can we just pray and we just can remind ourselves of our need of the gospel. Jesus, I want to thank you for your kingdom that is coming. I want to thank you that it's through people that are under your rule and your reign that are influencing every area of society. We, we, never, we never want to uh, be those that play off your kingdom against your church. We want to thank you for your church. Thank you for your beautiful bride. Thank you that you're coming back for your church. A perfect church, not a, not a blemished bride, but a perfect church. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, in a gracious and kind way, stand with each other in our imperfection. That we would be those that stand with the brokenhearted. That as we struggle with things in our lives, that we would find metaphors for the cross to invite people to Christ, who fixes up every brokenness that we might carry. And so I trust you for that this morning. And Lord, as we break bread together, we want to remind ourselves that we need your grace, Lord. We need your power. As we think about our communities and our friends and where we live and so many people that desperately need something of a revelation of who you are. Lord, we can do some things, but Lord, we need your power to do what we cannot do. We ask that you make us bold. We ask, Lord, that we would speak with kindness of your grace so that other people might find your kindness for their lives. But Lord, right now as we break bread together, we want to thank you for your body that was broken, for your blood that was poured out. And we thank you, Lord, that you promised us that this is a reminder of what you did for us. And so we we remind ourselves this morning, Lord, that we need you. We need your, your kingdom. We need your Holy Spirit. And we ask for forgiveness, Lord. We ask that you'd wash us and I thank you, Lord, for your promise that as we confess our sins and say, Lord, there are things that we've hurt you in what we've said and done, that your promise is that your blood washes us white as snow, as white as what we see outside. Though our sins were as red as scarlet, they become white as snow because of the blood of Jesus. And we say thank you, Lord. And I, I pray as we break bread now that you'd encourage us and refresh us in these simple, simple truths again. And we ask, Lord, that you take us deeper this year by the power of your Spirit, that we know you better, and that this church would grow in the fullness of their knowledge of you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.